Are two tax incentives better than one? How can the historic tax credit be paired with the Opportunity Zones tax incentive? Find out on today's episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Are two tax incentives better than one? Stacking or twinning multiple tax credits can oftentimes help bridge a funding gap on certain real estate projects. The Opportunity Zones program can be paired with a variety of other tax credits. The Low Income Housing Tax Credit or the New Markets Tax Credit, just to name a couple. The place-based nature of the Opportunity Zones program also makes it ideally suited to be paired with the Historic Tax Credits program. The HTC is a 40-plus-year-old tax policy that encourages private sector investment in the rehabilitation and reuse of historic buildings. And that's our topic of discussion on today's episode, as I'm joined by land use law and economic development planning expert Rich Rogers. Rich is an attorney at Borelli & Yachts, a Rochester, New York-based law firm focused on historic preservation and community economic development law. He is also principal at Urban Vantage, an urban planning and real estate development consulting firm. His newest project is Historic Funds, where he is currently building a 506C funding portal to help developers that qualify for either historic tax credits or qualified opportunity funds to conduct raises geared toward accredited investors. Rich, thank you for joining me today, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Jimmy. That was uh, quite the intro I gave you there. You've got a lot going on these days, it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. And before we get going, I, I'd like to just point out that while I am an attorney, uh, nothing that comes up on the call should be construed as legal advice. And listeners contemplating establishing an opportunity fund or raising capital should seek competent legal counsel for those purposes. Absolutely. That's a good disclosure to make right out of the gate. I appreciate it. So to start, can you explain to me and my listeners, what is the Historic Tax Credits Program? I touched on it a little bit in the intro, but can you, can you dive in a little bit more and tell me, how did it come into existence and why is it important? Sure. So to put it simply, the Historic Tax Credit provides a federal tax credit equal to 20% of the qualified rehabilitation cost for a building that's either listed on the National Register of Historic Places or is contributing in a uh, National Register Historic District. It was created as part of the Tax Reform Act of 1976 to encourage investment in historic buildings, and it's changed pretty substantially over the years, very significantly in the Internal Revenue Code changes in 1986, which have placed some passive activity restrictions that has changed the way it operates. It's important because it preserves our architectural heritage and lived history and also prevents sprawl and and waste by encouraging reinvestment in uh, historic urban settings and also small towns and villages. And where are you located exactly? You're in the the Buffalo-Rochester region, I believe, and that's that's in the Rust Belt. So I think the Historic Tax Credits Program applies a lot to the, the neighborhoods that you're in. Is that correct? Yes, definitely. I'm located in Buffalo, New York, 
and our law firm is is located in, in Rochester and upstate New York has been a uh, has definitely taken advantage of the the tax credit program. New York State has a complementary tax credit program that can be coupled with the federal program that that you know adds an additional incentive to uh, restoring historic buildings in New York State. So that's really you know stimulated this type of activity in our neck of the woods. I'm sure it has absolutely. What are some of the main differences between the Opportunity Zones program and the Historic Tax Credits program? Sure. So, you know, first of all, the Historic Tax Credit is a is a tax credit. It's not a deduction. It's not an exemption. Uh, so, after the taxpayer takes all of their deductions into account, the credit is applied dollar for dollar against their remaining tax liability. The Opportunity Zone program is more of an exemption or an elimination of tax, depending how, how long the investment is held. And so on that front, they also have different holding periods. The historic tax credit has a five-year holding period, and the uh, Opportunity Zone program has uh, kind of a 10-year holding period to, to really take full advantage of the benefits. Another key difference is the historic tax credit program is, is only for real estate, where the Opportunity Zone program could also be used for small business investing and, and stuff of that nature. The historic tax credit program, the credits need to flow according to the profits and losses of the partnership and in accordance with the, the membership interest and the LLC or the partnership interest. Uh, that's not exactly the case with the Opportunity Zone program. And I would say that overall opportunity zones are a bit more accessible because of what are called passive activity loss rules, which pretty much, to put it simply, means that you can only use historic tax credits against passive income. Your ability to use them against active income from, for example, a salary position uh, is pretty severely limited. But overall, I would say that the goals of the two programs are similar. They're really market interventions using the tax code designed to promote certain types of investment. Yeah, so the, the goals of the two programs are similar, but that's, that's about where, where the similarities end. There's, there's a lot of differences, it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. So, Rich, let's, let's actually back up for a minute and get to know a little bit more about you. Can you tell me more about your background? How did you get your start, and where did your passion for urban redevelopment and re- the restoration of historic buildings come from? Um, there are really two events, I would say, that, that really motivated me toward this line of work. First of all, I was in uh, Limerick, Ireland, with a, a SUNY model European Union program. And we were on a tour of the city. And upon reaching the edge of the city, you could just see the countryside and, and really walk into the, the countryside and the farms. And that was very unlike uh what I had seen in a lot of cities in in the Northeast where you have a significant amount of uh, suburban sprawl kind of surrounding the city that that cuts it off from those sorts of hiking opportunities and stuff of that nature. And then kind of following up also when I was on the Appalachian Trail, I was hiking after undergrad and that kind of reemphasized this kind of distaste, dislike for suburban sprawl. And, um, you know, out west, there are land use 
options like urban growth boundaries to, to restrict the amount of sprawl, but up in the Northeast, uh, it's already very much built out. So at this point, I, I would say our, our best option for preventing sprawl is, you know, stimulating reinvestment in, in urban neighborhoods and in areas that are already built. So that's, that's really what kind of got me into the, you know, land use law and also into urban planning. Gotcha. Very good. That's a good good background you have there. That was really cool. You were able to uh, get over to Europe and see a little bit different way of life than upstate New York. I'm sure that must have been fun for you. So you're an attorney at Borellian Yachts in, in Rochester, New York. What is their focus and what types of clients do you guys primarily serve up there? Sure. Borellian Yachts primarily represents real estate developers and works on project financing. Uh, that ranges from tasks like corporate formation and general real estate practice, including property acquisition and reviewing loan documents, to more complex issues like the syndication of historic tax credits, low-income housing tax credits, and new market tax credit transactions. And so these days, you're also principal at Urban Vantage. Can you tell me more about the work you do there? Advantage is an urban planning, economic development, and real estate development consulting firm. Generally, uh, a lot of our, our work is grant writing and advising municipalities and, and kind of nonprofits as to uh, how to implement their, their existing plans, projects they've identified, and really lining those up with available incentives that, that range from tax credits and exemptions to grants and other subsidies, depending on, on what the project details are. So a lot of both private and public sector clients and, and really kind of working with both sides of that equation to, to get projects done. So a lot of public-private partnerships you're putting together up there? Yes, definitely. I, I would say that's, that's generally a goal that, that we work towards. And what are some of the incentives that that local governments are are providing to to help accelerate the impact of that these tax credits have. What what else are they doing to to lure businesses in and lure more development in? Well, in New York State, I think we're kind of notorious for for high tax rates, both in the the property tax context, but also you know income taxes and, and a lot of business regulations. So the the municipal governments typically will use tax exemptions to try to stimulate investment, property tax exemptions. Also, the state government has, as I mentioned before, their own historic tax credit. They also have a brownfield tax credit that assists developers with, with redeveloping buildings that were previously polluted and, and you know cleaning those up. Also, New York State distributes a lot of grant funding annually kind of across upstate New York to kind of uh, help to stimulate investment in a lot of these communities that, that have been struggling uh, over the past couple of decades. That's great. Those public-private partnerships, especially in, in locations with high tax rates, California, New Jersey, and New York especially, can, that can make a huge impact on luring businesses to, to the states. How many HTC eligible buildings are there in the United States? Can you can you put any sort of number on? I know it might be kind of hard to estimate, but but do your best for me. Yeah, this is a little tough to say uh, because a lot of eligible buildings have not yet been listed on the National Register. 
But currently, there are about 1 million uh, properties listed within National Register Historic Districts and about 80,000 buildings that are listed individually. To be eligible, a building that's within a district needs to be certified as contributing to that district. And if I had to guess, uh, I would say, you know, there may be around uh, three to five million total in the United States, but, but that's a pretty rough estimate. I would say in older cities, about 40% of the building stock is at least 50 years old. And the standards are, are a bit subjective in that, you know, if the building's at least 50 years old and, and has, a, has a good story uh, regarding its history, there's at least a case that can be made for eligibility. Sure, that's that's a good ballpark guess. So thanks for providing that for me. So, uh, and in terms of how many of those may be located in opportunity zones, I, if I recall correctly, I think there's between about ten to twelve percent of the U.S. population resides in opportunity zones. If we kind of extrapolate that to the number of buildings in the U.S., and I know that's not exactly apples to apples, but you know maybe about ten percent of of three million, three to five million number that you cite. That's about 300,000 to 500,000 HTC eligible buildings that reside within opportunity zones. You can kind of twin those two programs together. So there's a lot of options out there. Of course, again, that's just kind of a ballpark estimate. Nobody has the exact numbers, at least I don't think, or they're not, they're not with us today anyway. We're just doing our best guesswork here, but, but that's a lot of, that's a lot of buildings that, um, that you, that are eligible to take advantage of both of these tax programs. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what that number might be. I would say when we first noticed the, the Qualified Opportunity Zone provisions and the, the tax code uh, rewrite, we reached out to the, the New York State Historic Preservation Office to advocate for prioritizing the zone designations and tracks that have a lot of National Register districts already in them. Uh, also, I think it's worth to point out that many states that have either their own historic tax credit or low-income housing tax credit program limit those those incentives to low-income census tracts. So, you know, there may already be some kind of coordination in the works where maybe it's a bit more likely that that opportunity zone census tracts have already had the nominations done for for those uh, areas. Also. Um, I noticed the the kind of handy mapping tool that that you have on your site. So I would point out that a lot of, for the opportunity zones, uh, I would point out that a lot of states have kind of publicly available uh, GIS maps data regarding their historic districts that you may be able to overlay on that map, and that may kind of tell a better story. Well, you just gave me a bunch of work to do. I got to go back and and build that map now. (laughs) Maybe I'll have it up in time for uh, when this podcast episode airs in a, in a week or so. Uh, fingers fingers crossed. <laughs> if if I do, it'll yeah. be linked to in the show notes. Um, yep. Anyways, getting back to our conversation here. Uh, so talk to me more about combining different tax incentive programs. What are some of the unique benefits to combining programs? And what type of impact does credit stacking make for investors? So first of all, I think it's important to point out that the the final regulations haven't yet been issued. But one of the the nice things about twinning the programs is the substantial rehabilitation test that 
applies to qualified opportunity zone investments is similar uh, to that in a historic tax credit context. This substantial rehabilitation test already exists for historic tax credit projects. The taxpayer needs to exceed their basis in the building for the amount of qualified rehabilitation expenses that they incur. So, for example, if they purchase a building for a million dollars, they need to spend more than a million dollars fixing it up in order to be eligible uh, for the for the credit. Another kind of nice thing about twinning the programs, and this is a bit more technical, but the historic tax credit program requires that the taxpayer reduce their basis in the in the project equal to the amount of tax credits that are generated. And the way that the Opportunity Zone program works, the taxpayer can step up their basis to market value on sale or disposition in year 10. So in a unique way, that may, uh, with the proper structure, allow for the basis reduction due to the historic tax credits to be negated in the context of a twinned deal. Also, I would say that depending on how the offerings are structured, if if an opportunity zone investment, for example, or an opportunity fund offering occurs first, then later on, uh, as the project you know gets closer to implementation, the developer or sponsor can do a second offering for historic tax credit equity which would bring a lot more cash into the deal and kind of following up on uh, some of what some of your other guests have pointed out, that will reduce the risk on the long-term stability of the investment. You know, also, it, it, it's a bit, a bit of a stabilizing force um, to prevent the project from being as susceptible to things like rent changes or increasing interest rates. So th- I think those are some of the key things that's great. That's a lot to unpack there. So there would be potentially multiple pools of money coming in, or at least two pools of money coming in. The first pool being the opportunity zone equity, and and then the second pool, maybe a few years down the line, would be the historic tax credits. That, that, that's just one example of a way to structure it. I understand there's multiple ways to to do this, but that's yeah, that's an interesting way I, of doing it. Yeah, we see um, you know some of our clients now will conduct an initial raise just among kind of local investors that I think would potentially be replaced by qualified opportunity fund investors, you know, in the early stages of the project. And then, then I wouldn't say a couple of years later, but kind of subsequently performing a historic tax credit transaction or investment to, you know, then reduce the risk or potentially even return some of the capital to the initial opportunity fund investors. I would also point out, I I think one thing that's important to remember is that uh, you have kind of distinct investors um, for qualified opportunity funds and historic tax credits. In some cases, the same investors will be able to utilize both benefits. But overall, I think, you know, it doesn't follow that just because someone has capital gains, that they also have passive income to to shield through the tax credit program. Right. So twinning the two programs may not necessarily benefit a lot of investors, but it 
is hugely beneficial to a developer who's looking to raise funds because now they have they've they've got different pools to put together their capital stack. Is is that the main point you're making there? Yes, definitely. So Rich, you're located as we mentioned before, you're located in the the Buffalo Rochester area in upstate New York. Can you talk to me about the market in your neck of the woods? Upstate New York in particular, I know is is a pretty weak market in in real estate. So just how important is the HTC program to getting these projects off the ground? And and how will the Opportunity Zones program further improve your ability to raise capital? Yeah, so uh, Buffalo in particular had had an absolutely stagnant real estate market for, I would say, at least 30 years, if not longer, uh, leading up to 2008, 2009. Since then, uh, there there has been some increased investment and activity, but overall, it's still still a, a relatively weak market. You know, it's a it's a shrinking area overall, population wise. So it's it's a bit more dependent on the subsidies. Uh, I would say within the the city of Buffalo and also the city of Rochester. Uh, for the most part, almost all new development has been driven by historic tax credits or other tax credits or grants. And a little bit that's that's starting to change. You're you're seeing kind of the market forces catch up and, and starting to see a little bit of infill development here and there. But with the with the cost of construction and and interest rates, the historic buildings kind of get done first, if you will. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's, uh, these programs are crucial to to getting these products off the ground and this this real estate development going. How does dealing in a weaker secondary market like Buffalo differ from putting together deals in healthier markets? The deals in these markets are more dependent on subsidies, and as a result, move a bit slower. And to some extent, they're they're harder to get financed. It's it's harder to find access to capital, access to credit, especially if you're a newer developer without kind of a proven track record and, and strong guarantees. And you know, I would say, just given the the, the general market conditions, uh, the capital that does exist in these places is often very careful and conservative, which which slows things down a bit further. That being said, there's comparatively low acquisition prices because the property values are low, uh, which I think does lead to some opportunity. It makes it easier to get past that substantial rehab test that we talked about. And that being said, construction costs can, can be on the high end sometimes. And I guess one thing to point out about the historic tax credit part of this is that you know, you don't have to syndicate your tax credits. You don't have to admit an investor. And in larger markets, it may be that the developer will just keep the tax credits. Or, you know, even some of the, the more uh, larger, well-off developers in these markets may just keep the tax credits rather than admitting an investor to monetize them. So I think that's kind of a key difference in how the program operates in these markets. Gotcha. That that makes sense. And speaking of upstate New York, Preservation Studios up there is a it's an historic preservation consulting firm that serves that area. I understand you have a relationship with them. What 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 exactly are you doing with uh, with Preservation Studios? Sure. Uh, so I am a part time employee of Preservation Studios. Typically, only working about five to ten hours a week. 
Uh, I mostly help with reviewing client budgets and calculating tax credit eligible expenses or qualified rehabilitation expenses. And uh, we share office space with them through Urban Vantage and Borelian Yachts. And, but I would say the, the major function of Preservation Studios is getting uh, buildings listed and districts listed on the National Register, uh, which, which they've really um, uh, done very well with. They, they have a lot of expertise in architectural history and, you know, working with developers, working with architects and, and kind of making sure that that process uh, goes smoothly. So what's the process like for, for getting on that, that register? There's a, a three-part listing process through the, the National Park Service. Part one more so is determining that there's some level of eligibility. Part two has more to do with refining the designs to meet the Secretary of the Interior Standards. And then part three is after project completion, kind of claiming the credits. There's a lot of coordination with the State Historic Preservation Office. Prior to submitting things to the National Park Service, the state office does a cursory review and, and they issue their approval first. This isn't as much my area of expertise as, as some of the, you know, the preservation studios, the other uh, workers there, the owners and employees, but that's, that's the basic process. Gotcha. Gotcha. I understand. So, well, we've talked about your work as an attorney at the law firm Borellian Yachts. We've talked about Urban Vantage. We've talked about Preservation Studios. And as if that wasn't enough, you're a busy guy, Rich. <laughs> Let's talk now about your other project you're working on, which is historic funds, uh, specifically the 506C funding portal that you're currently putting together. Can you give me some details of that project and uh, why you think it's necessary to build it out? Yeah. Historic Funds is a project with some partners from Preservation Studios and some other business projects I've been involved in. And mostly it's a reaction to kind of changes in the securities laws initiated by the the Jobs Act or the Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act of 2013, which uh, really changed the types of offerings available under Regulation D and specifically uh, Regulation uh, well, 506C. And so we're working with a securities uh, law firm from New Jersey in establishing this. And really our focus is driving capital to historic rehabilitation projects. And, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily mean the tax credit syndication or the opportunity zone piece of it. That could be anything from mezzanine debt to uh, a bridge loan for, for some other sort of tax credit program. But what, what we've noticed a lot in preservation studios is there's a lot of smaller projects that don't get funded, right, and don't move forward because they can't find investors for their tax credits. A lot of the traditional tax credit investors look for kind of as few large projects as they can find. Uh, some of this has to do with the transactional costs between attorneys and, and accountants, but some of it is just uh, kind of a, a lack of exposure between the investors and these these projects. So we're hoping to have this platform allow uh, smaller developers to get to get their projects out there. And, and really bring a bit more transparency to this market. And what are the size of some of these smaller projects? 
Yeah, I mean, really, any anywhere from a million dollars total project cost to about five million dollars of total project costs are, are pretty uh, difficult to place right now. You know, you're talking about anything below a million dollars of federal credits is is really kind of tricky. Uh, to place, so we're we're hoping hoping to open that up a bit. You know, a very small project, something around five hundred thousand, would be perhaps pro- prohibitively small, just given some of the transaction costs. But we're hoping that you know we may be able to identify some strategic partners to to, to work on that side of things as well. Gotcha. So, and what what asset classes are these smaller projects in? Are these multifamily units or retail? Most of the projects that you know, we work on our conversion from the legacy use, like a like a factory type of industrial use, to more of a mixed use project with some level of commercial, either office or retail space, and then uh, a lot of residential units is kind of the typical recipe. Sometimes they're totally residential. Uh, sometimes there's more commercial uses, but I would say that almost always they're mixed use projects. Gotcha. So you spoke a little bit earlier about the Jobs Act and and regulatory offerings. Can you dive into that a little bit more? What type of regulatory offerings are your clients using typically? Are CF or or D? And what, and what are the pros and cons of 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 the different types of offerings? Yeah. So I think this is a little tricky um, without the final regulations. And I would like to point out that I'm not a securities lawyer. Uh, we've <laughs> we've engaged a securities lawyer uh, because that's not really our background on the law side. That being said, I think regulation crowdfunding would be a little difficult since it, it prohibits the crowdfunding investors from investing in an upper tier entity, uh, an LLC that then invests in the project. So since they would have to invest directly in the owner, that kind of limits the ability to also syndicate the tax credits. There, there's way to, ways to do it uh, through what's called a, a master lease structure, but it you know just generally might cause some uncertainty with, with the bank. The bank might not want to see so many individual participants in the uh, the owner entity, if you will. Um, And I think that has kind of caused problems across the board for regulation crowdfunding for real estate, you know, not only not only for historic projects, but a bit more generally. That being said, depending on the the final regulations, uh, it it may be possible to set up a crowdfunding thing. But I, I think mostly we'll see regulation D, either 506B or 506C. And um, uh, kind of depending on what the underlying assets are, I also wouldn't be too surprised to see some Regulation A offerings and some interstate offerings as well. I think one of your prior guests had even pointed out that you know you could have a a corporation that was set up that you know would be less dependent on on these types of exempt offerings. So that would be kind of interesting to track and follow. Yeah, definitely. So we we've brought up the IRS regulations a few times. Now, I want to ask you about that. We're recording this episode on January 16th, 2019, and we're currently in the midst of a government shutdown, an IRS hearing on the topic of Opportunity Zones was recently postponed last week, I believe. And we're not really sure when the regs are going to come out now. I think we, I think a lot of people were expecting them 
sometime this month, and and I'm not sure. I don't know if anybody knows really what what's going to happen here with this. Uh, things seem to have been delayed. But that being said, Rich, what are some of the the key issues that that you're hoping the IRS clears up soon, whenever they do come out with the final final regulations? What are what are some of the sticking points with you? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things uh, as far as twinning some of these programs is getting a bit more clarity on the active trader business standard. That kind of informs what structure will be used for these twinned offerings. If, if a landlord entity essentially is considered an active trader business, I think you'll see opportunity zone investors in the landlord or owner entity, and then you'll see the tax credits, the historic tax credits passed through to a tenant uh, by making an election under uh, Internal Revenue Code Section 50B. If not, I would expect to see a, uh, a flip of the partnership interest in year five, essentially where the tax credit investor would would leave after year five or, or their interest would revert back to both the project sponsor and the opportunity fund. Also, um, again, th- this could be a bit different in larger markets. Uh, you could see some interesting creative things resulting from um, an opportunity fund structured as a corporation. But as we've said before, typically, I think you'll see kind of investors with different motivations. I think one kind of structuring thing, and this is maybe a bit more practical than, you know, dependent on the regs, but by having these these two mouths to feed, if you will, on the investor side, uh, cash flow might be pretty tight in the first few years. Um, so that's kind of a a practical structuring question. And I think, I'm not sure that the final regs will shed some light on this, but we've had clients that are very curious about setting up a a year 10 option, if you will, to buy out the opportunity fund. A lot of developer clients. Obviously, this is going to limit the upside to the opportunity fund investors. And I'm not exactly sure you know, that, that the final regs would even allow for that or if there'd be any opportunity or any appetite for that among the opportunity fund investors. So I think exiting from these deals might be, it may take a little while to, to finalize that, that part of the structure. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that uh, a little bit down the road here uh, when we get toward the end. I wanted to ask you, I'll ask you now, what what are some exit strategies that that you're proposing for your clients and and their investors at at year ten and beyond at at some point the investor has to dispose of his equity in the opportunity fund in order to be able to step up his basis to the fair market value and and actually achieve the the capital gains elimination what 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 are you advising your clients to do or you maybe you're just still in wait and see mode on that? We're mostly in wait and see mode. I think we've we've heard different things from from different people as far as what those expectations might be. It, it does seem that there's a bit of an adverse relationship almost between the developer and the opportunity fund. Obviously, the developer wants some level of predictability, right? So maybe a right of first refusal, where the you know opportunity fund might be able to solicit offers, and then the developer might have the right to match it to to buy them out. I could see something like that. 
I could potentially see some sort of a, a put or a call option that, you know, is, is based on an appraisal, maybe in year 15 or, or year 11. So I think that there's going to be a few different ways to structure it. I also, you know, I wouldn't assume that the fund will wait until year 10 to exit the deal. Based on the proposed regs, the fund may be able to leave in year five when the tax credit investor leaves allowing the, the developer to kind of refinance and buy them out. And then the fund can go and invest in a second project and hold that project through year 10. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. But I would say that we're definitely still in wait and see mode and see how this market kind of settles in. Right. Yeah, those are some interesting ideas you mentioned there. Yeah. We'll have to keep an eye on that and see what the final regulations say about that. Well, let's, Rich, let's say I'm interested in investing in one of your clients' projects, how do I invest and what what criteria do I have to meet? Is there a minimum investment amount? Um, so that obviously that's going to vary uh, based on a project-by-project project basis, what the offering opportunity is. You know, I would say if you visit our site at historicfunds.com, that's where projects will be listed, at least on, on that side of things. So I, w- I would say that's that's the um, approach. I would also say that we're kind of pursuing some partnerships on the the capital side with some uh, fund managers who you know have experience in, in historic tax credits and opportunity zones to kind of uh, help underwrite help underwrite the deals and kind of uh, bring in some of their existing investor base and stuff of that nature. So. Yeah, I, I would just uh, maybe keep an eye on the website as we really start to, to roll out some projects here over, over the next few months. Sounds good. Uh, we'll be sure to do that. I, I definitely want to keep an eye on, on historicfunds.com. Looks like, a, looks like a good product you're putting together there. So we, we've been talking about how great the Opportunity Zones program is and how incredible the opportunity is for investors and, or, and even more so for real estate developers to be able to combine the, or to twin the Opportunity Zones program with, with different tax credits. But let's take a glass-half-empty approach for a moment, uh, if you don't mind. Do you suspect that, that the Opportunity Zones initiative may actually dry up some investment in HTC-eligible buildings that aren't located in Opportunity Zones? Yeah, I, I don't really think so, um, because the investors have such different motivations. You know, the the capital gains deferral exemption might not equate to the need for passive activity credits. You know, a lot of these, the tax credit investors are, you know, large C corporations or large banks that have Community Reinvestment Act considerations. So they're going to, you know, keep going for the HTC deals that that come to them. And again, I think, you know, they kind of seek out deals that investing in a small number of large deals to the extent possible, um, at least your more traditional HTC investors. You know, that being said, uh, I think developers generally might shift their focus to opportunity zones, which could cause the, the historic tax credit investors to follow. But again, the, the historic tax credit investment process is highly institutionalized. There's a lot of syndicators and broker dealers who kind of have the existing relationships. So, you know, I think a lot of the decisions will be centered around the the project sponsors and developers uh, to some extent. Also, um, 
you know, I think what's what's more likely to, to dry up our kind of uh, uh, historic tax credit eligible buildings in opportunity zones, right? Because, you know, eventually you're going to, I mean, I guess you could run out, right, of buildings if those are the first ones that people go for as far as, as twinning deals, you know, you, the buildings have to be at least 50 years old. So hypothetically, you could run out. But obviously, as we talked about earlier, there's there's lots and lots of buildings. So that would just necessitate, you know, getting some new ones listed on the National Register. Yeah, I think if, if we ever run out of HTC eligible buildings within Opportunity Zones, that may, may actually be a good problem to have. That means the program's working really well. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Well, Rich, we're getting to the end of our time here today, but uh, before we go, can and I know you already mentioned historicfunds.com, but can you tell my listeners uh, if there's anywhere else they can go to learn more about you and your projects? Yeah, um, you know, Borelli Yachts, uh, Borelli and Yachts, uh, th- there's a website, BorelliYachts.com. Preservation Studios has a website and a blog called Preservation Exchange. We also, Urban Vantage uh, has a website. We have a blog that we're, we're kind of working on picking up here. We'll, we'll be kind of doing a blog through commonowner.com, which is the, the parent company uh, for historic funds. We'll be, we're looking at launching a, a donation-based portal called Neighbor Funds and potentially also getting into the crowdfunding space depending on whether or not the Fixed Crowdfunding Act, which has been proposed, kind of eliminates some of those issues that we've, we were discussing earlier uh, regarding kind of the, the capital stack and, and the number of owners. So, so yeah, I mean, I guess I, I, my LinkedIn page, uh, I'm, I'm happy if anyone wants to reach out, message me or email me. Um, I'm happy to discuss these issues uh, a bit more in depth. That's great. Thanks for that, Rich. And for my listeners, I'll have links to all of the resources that Rich and I discussed today in the show notes for this episode. I'll have links to historicfunds.com, to Urban Vantage, to Rich's LinkedIn page and and everything else we discussed. And you can find the show notes on the Opportunity Zones database website at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. Well, Rich, thanks for joining me today to talk about historic tax credits and Opportunity Zones and twinning the two programs together. I really appreciate your time, and I hope to talk more with you soon. I think this is kind of a really great opportunity. Um, you know, we're, I've been kind of promoting Opportunity DB2 kind of with that map. It's so much better than kind of what uh, New York State put out as far as accessibility and, and, you know, kind of seeing what's going on there. Oh, good. And I'm glad to hear that. That, that calculator uh, product that you have on there is, is pretty uh, great, I would say, for just, you know, introducing people to the program. That's, oh, very That's cool. really exciting. Well, thank you for the endorsement. I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes as well. And Rich, thanks again for joining me today. Thanks a lot, Jimmy. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Absolutely. We'll see you soon then. Thanks. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund Investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.